Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful once again for this day where we can gather together as your people and rediscover the real Jesus together as your people. And what a no better day in the church calendar than on Reformation Sunday that we would look and see the resurrected Jesus than on Reformation Sunday where there's, there's such a gift to us offered to us by your grace. Lord, may we receive it even more fresh this day. May you speak new truths into our hearts. May our thoughts be yours. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we would walk in the abundant life that is only found in a walk with Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today, brothers and sisters, we arrive at the end of our series of Discovering the Real Jesus. I want to thank you for hanging with me as we've leapt through John. It's been a little frustrating because, oh, oh, we missed this story. But it's been a whole exercise on not only rediscovering the real Jesus, but equipping us to take this forward. And we'll be talking about that in the weeks to come. So we arrive, and what we just heard read by Jerry is an eyewitness account. Therefore, it's history, right? Mark, Matthew, you know, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and of course, John are eyewitnesses to what is happening here. And so uh, he's writing as an eyewitness with details you don't see in ancient literature. I hope you saw it. This is one of my favorite passages when in verse 4 of chapter 20, John, who at this time is 17, 18, 19 years old, writes and says, Now both of them, meaning Peter and John, were running together, but the other disciple, that means John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Isn't that great? Number one, the detail is unique among ancient literature. Second and great thing about that is that is biblical smack talk. Isn't it great? He's making, he's kind of making fun. I can't wait to get into heaven. I go, you're making fun of him. Yeah, I was. Yeah. yeah. And Peter's like, whatever. Uh, yeah, so Peter arrives at you uh, uh, as the old guy. But this is a real event. As they discover the grave's clothes are folded neatly. And John doesn't hold back for why he's writing this for you and for me. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's writing this so that you may believe, meaning your full trust for your present life, and your life in the future is in this act upon the cross for you in Jesus Christ. And he proved that he was who he says he is by the resurrection. He always said this, right? He was going to do this, and he did. And John is saying, it's true. And therefore, by believing in this, you have life. And English doesn't capture that word, zoe. Life means joy, full, abundant, fulfilling assured, hopeful, purposeful, all wrapped up together, but we put life on a cereal box, all right? You eat this and you'll have life. No, you'll gain weight because it's filled with sugar, all right? 
No, my friends, this is a belief and a trust in a person that will give you life. And if that doesn't excite you, you don't have a pulse. If that doesn't excite you and make you excited for what the Lord's doing in your life and mine, uh, you wake up. The author of Hebrews says, Faith, belief, is the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. It's not a blind leap. You look at the evidence, it's there, and although I can't see Jesus, he's there because I trust him because of these eyewitness accounts, which are credible accounts. So, we're going to look at what authentic faith looks like today, according to John, what this trust really looks like in a person's life. And in so looking, we'll be able to examine ourselves and anyone else around us and help us to see how we might bring this good news to the world. Any such authentic faith person exhibits these three traits, all right? Number one, authentic belief is always a transfer of trust, not a creation of it, all right? It's a transfer of trust, not a creation. You don't have to bubble it up within you. Because many people say to me, and I know Zach too has heard this as well, you know, I'd love to believe what you believe, but I just don't have the faith like you do. And to that I say, nonsense. We all have faith. We all have a passionate faith, by the way. Becoming a Christian, in other words, getting connected to the resurrected Christ, is taking, taking that passionate faith off of where it is and putting it onto something else, namely Jesus Christ. Mary, John, Peter, and Thomas had all seen Jesus do and say what we've discovered all fall. They saw him with the woman at the well and how she brought revival to that town. They saw him feed the 5,000. They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. Everything that he said came true. And yet, Mary goes to the tomb knowing that he had predicted that he would rise on the third day. They didn't quite understand it, but they know he said it. And it was so well known that the Romans put a guard there. All right? So she arrives at the tomb, and what's her first response? Oh my, they've stolen the body. So she goes back, and the young buck John sprints with old iron lungs, Peter, to the tomb. And they think the same thing. They, they're, they're kind of wondering about all this. They're not sure. They didn't believe that he had been resurrected. They thought someone took the body. See, unbelief in Jesus is never simply an absence of faith. It's the presence of something else. And our faith is already passionately and often irrationally attached to the idea that we are competent to run our own lives the way we want to run them without any input from any outside source. We know how to run our lives. We can do this. Even if I call myself a Christian, I'll do the Christian life my way. And the reason it's so hard to believe, like Mary and Peter and John and Thomas, is because... Not because we're incapable of belief, but because their faith is located somewhere else at that time. 
And by the way, that's why it's impossible to read the Bible or any other subject, by the way, without bringing your presuppositions to the passage. We all bring our presuppositions to the passage. But the trouble is, when you read this, and when you read the Bible, and you read that Jesus is who he really said he is, that you lose control of your life. Who in the world can be objective about that? None of us can. Because our faith is already absolutely wrapped up that we have the competence to run our own lives our own way, the way we want to run them. Therefore, should there be anyone in our congregation this morning who thinks to themselves, I would love to believe in the resurrected Christ gene, but I'm, I, li- I have questions. I have doubts. I have skeptics. I'm a skeptic. I'm a genuine skeptic. You can understand that, can't you? I I would say, sure, I can understand that. But I want you to invite you at that this time to be a thoroughgoing skeptic with me and question your questions. <laughs> Why are you even bringing these questions after a while? Doubt your doubts. Be suspicious of your suspicions. Be a skeptic of your skepticism. Because your own questioning about who Jesus is may be based on an irrational belief in your own passion to run your life the way you want to run it and not the way Jesus wants to be Lord of your life. How do you know you're competent to run your own life? How do you, Who says... You're in control. Are you your creator? No. You see, belief is difficult because it's already passionately grounded in something else. So if you're really going to be an open-minded person, what you will do is look at the claims of the resurrected Jesus Christ, not only in John, but in the other Gospels as well. Examine the evidence and be willing to question your own questions and wonder whether or not your unbelief is really based, really, it's belief in something else. You already have lots of trust. You're your own master and you know it because authentic belief is always a transfer of trust. It's not a creation of trust. Secondly, what we see in this passage is authentic belief is always a trust in what Jesus has done, not merely on what he has said. You know, you look at Mary and John and Peter and Thomas. Why did they meet the risen Christ? Why did they not necessarily rejoice on the onset? Why were they surprised? After all, they had his teaching. They had heard him teach for the better part of three years. He gave wonderful teaching on how to love your neighbors, how to bless your friends, equality, justice, love justice, do mercy, and walk humbly with our God messages. And many people, and perhaps you might be here this morning and say, I don't know what I believe about all that other stuff and the the resurrection and the myths of Jesus Christ. But that's not important. The important thing is to follow his moral teaching. Because he was a great teacher. 
to live as Jesus lived and to love as Jesus loved. Well, John is portraying for us that that's not enough because Mary Magdalene, Peter, John, and Thomas had all walked with him and had lived as Jesus had lived for the better part of three years. And it sh- this, this event shook them to the core. They were a mess at this juncture. Why? Because it's not merely the principles of Jesus' teachings and the abstract beliefs in Jesus' teaching that changes the person's life. What changes the person's life is a relationship with this Jesus Christ and an experience in a walk with him. And being Anglican Christians, we know this because we hear the stories from around the world of the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. If you were to speak with Bishop Juwan, as I have personally, and Abraham, who comes here, you know, you know, in Africa a hundred years ago, before the gospel really began to penetrate the culture. For example, it was a common African practice that it was legal to beat your wife if she disobeyed you. And so spousal abuse was rampant all over Africa. But then the gospel came. And all of a sudden, the gospel would move from village to village because the husbands realized they're to love their wives as Christ loved the church, to be gentle and to lead with gentleness and love and care and concern. And all of a sudden, lives were changed. And it went from village to village to village to where it's still one of the fastest growing faiths in the world is in Africa. They stopped beating their wives. They stopped mistreating their servants. They stopped participating in raids that wiped out whole other tribes of the next village. People's lives are changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if a missionary went into a village and said, this is the gospel. We should love one another and live better lives and work to make each other's lives better. Make the world a better place. Do men just hear that message and say, wow, I never thought of that. Really? No. I think I'll stop beating my wife now. Do you think they do that? No. It was the gospel. The pure, unadulterated gospel. Just like Mary and Thomas' lives were changed by Jesus Christ. It's not the teachings. It's not the principles. It's the relationship with this loving Lord. It wasn't until they actually had this personal relationship and experience with Jesus resurrected Jesus who they discovered was still alive that their lives were truly changed. Because Christianity does not say to you believe in Christ's teaching and you'll be saved. Believe in these principles for living a better life. No, Christianity says there's a person from outside of you in time and space who entered time and space and died on the cross for you, the life you should have lived, died on the cross 
for you and live the life that you should have lived. And he's going to return to judge the living and the dead. And he can be known today, right now. He's your king and he's your savior. And if these facts are true and you believe in them, that changes your life. Authentic belief is always a belief in what Jesus has done, not merely in his teachings. And third, we also see in this passage that authentic faith always means drop your terms in order to trust Jesus Christ. Drop your terms. I mean, what did Thomas say? Thomas said, uh-uh, unless I see the nails in his hands and the spear mark in his side, I won't believe. Jesus shows up and says, dude, here they are. Here's my spear mark right here. You know, notice Tom, Thomas dropped his terms at that point, didn't he? Thomas doesn't say, all right, let me touch you, Lord. He immediately says, my Lord and my God. In other words, a basset hound doesn't have a tiger for a pet. And humans don't say, well, I'll believe God if and only if he does this or that for me. If he shows me this or that. Authentic belief drops its terms. Because you see, resurrection faith is getting rid of the belief that you're in control. Transferring over it and saying, I will drop my terms. I, I will believe in you, Lord Jesus Christ, because of what you've done for me. I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you rose from the dead for me. You did that. Not, I'll believe you only if you do this or that for me. Those are terms. And as long as you're thinking like that, you will never connect with the risen Christ. And look what he did with these people. Thomas became a mighty witness. Peter was an absolute coward, and he became a mighty, courageous preacher for the Lord. Amazing what they did. You see, my friends, there's a blueprint with your name on it. And oh, it will be so wonderful to see how that blueprint will be fleshed out in your and my life. But it's going to take time. And it will be revealed to you as you connect with the risen Christ by faith. And how do you do that? You already have faith. Transfer it. You know, secondly, look at what Jesus has accomplished for you upon that cross. And because of that love for you, excruciating suffering for you and for me, he rose from the dead three days later to demonstrate who he was. God conquering death. And third, drop your terms and say, my Lord, my God, I'll obey you whatever you ask, Lord. I'll do, go where you want me to go. I'll believe 
because those were wounds are real and they're true and they're for me. And by the way, the first thing the Lord says to you in a walk with Jesus is not, all right, minion, go and plow the back 40. <laughs> What's the first thing he said to Mary Magdalene? Mary. He called her by her name. Her first God-given name. He tells you who you are. You're his adopted child. You're welcome into the family. Even when you mess up, you're welcome back into the family. He enters into a personal relationship because that's what he wants with us. My friends, this is my story. You know, I've had so many people when I, I'm going to tell my, my whole testimony this morning because I've told snippets but not the whole thing at once because people have misconceptions of who Gene Sherman truly is. Let me tell you who I am. Grew up in Northern Virginia, the son of a CIA operative, was never home, went in, got out of the CIA, went into GTE defense systems, which was General Telephone Electric, selling guided missile systems to the Pentagon. We went to church up until I was seven because I was taught that, you know, be a good person, Gene, be moral, treat people right, be kind. But God is out there and really doesn't have much bearing on our lives. And he's there when you need him, but that's about it. But all roads lead to heaven. You know, whether it's Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, that's the way we in the West have learned it. And that's what I was taught. But we went to church, but that didn't make sense to me. So at seven years old, I was in the meanest Sunday school teacher on the face of the planet. I'm certain that that guy never took a spiritual gifts test and was shoved in there with a high and tight haircut as I was starting to grow my hair. He didn't like my hair. And he didn't like my best friend's hair because we were, we were starting to look like the Beatles. And he didn't like the Beatles. And so he didn't like us and we didn't like him. And we were going to make his life miserable until my parents stopped bringing me. That's a seven-year-old thinking. All right? And that's, it worked. I hated it. My sister hated it, who was 10 years older than me. My brother hated it. My mom had, was the one who had to get us all together to go to church. My dad didn't quite like it either. So at seven years old, halfway through the year, we stopped. And I said, yes, Sunday morning's mine. So I grew up with this idea that I was a presumed Christian. And all my friends, none of my friends went to church, you know. And, and we, we, we thought, you know, all roads lead to heaven and God will weigh it out at the end. Just be a good person. But I found myself on a performance wheel. Because I had belief and trust and I had affections. Because you know, opening line of Remember the Titans, in Virginia, high school football is a way of life. My high school sat 10,000 people on a Friday night. And that's where we all went. Everybody went. There was no cable. There was no, there was just radio and three television stations and Northern Virginia football. And it was awesome. And I loved it. And I couldn't wait to take the field as one of those guys. Daddy, one day I'm going to play there. And I got to. It was exciting and fun. I loved high school football. Loved it. Loved the game. Every part of it. I loved high school baseball. My goodness. We'd have 100 people at a baseball game pay three bucks. 
Three bucks in the 70s to watch a bunch of high school players that weren't going anywhere. They would watch me play baseball. Why? I have no idea. We were good. We were good. And winning was our habit in our culture. You didn't lose, and losing was unacceptable. And if you lose and you're okay with that, you're a loser, and we're going to run over you. We're going to come into town. We're going to beat you up. We're going to take your girl. We're going to come back tomorrow, next day, and we're going to do it again. That was our attitude. And we won. We won all the time. So I love football. I love baseball. And by the way, my high school, W.T. Woodson High School, was known around the state for having the best-looking girls around. I married one. All right? I mean, I would, I would go to other schools, and they would say, Oh, Woodson, you got the best-looking girls. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. It was a pleasure to go to school every day. You know? So you see these loves that I had? I just, I just loved being around, and I, I made a bunch of friends and girl friends that were just friends, and just the music of that era with the country music of Merle Haggard and Waylon Jennings and, and Willie Nelson, and, and all, just loved it, and ZZ Top, and just, just loved all that. But I lacked peace. I lacked purpose. I lacked hope. And I lacked assurance. And I was growing older. That mouse wheel kept getting faster and faster and faster. And I found myself, I couldn't get off. Until one Sunday night or Monday night, I don't remember what night it was, we were watching Little House on the Prairie. And the preacher was preaching. And my dad turned to me and said, we ought to go to church. I said, I like that. So the following Sunday, he took me to Truro, now Anglican Church, and it was packed. I mean, it was squeeze-in packed. You, you know, we were pews. And, and it, all of a sudden, I realized what John Howe was preaching wasn't what my family had taught me. It wasn't, it wasn't anything I had ever heard before. That salvation, and salvation is not merely a hope for my own cloud in eternity. It's a possession that we have now that includes joy and hope and peace and purpose and assurance that I will get there and one day he'll come to judge the living and the dead and we'll live forever physically. I hadn't heard that before. But it's placed all on Jesus Christ. Not my works, his works. And oh, by the way, all truth is exclusive. That means if this is true, all the other ones are wrong. And I received Christ four and a half years later with Kim by my side. And ever since then, I've had peace, a life-giving peace, joy, purpose, hope, and assurance that not only will I get there now, but I can, have, I can make a difference now, right now. In this world today, using the gifts that God's given me. The world can't compete with that. How about you? Question your questioning. Trust in what he's done for you upon the cross and that he truly did rise from the dead for you and drop your terms. And as you do that, and as we pick up the bread and the wine today and return to our seats... You can count 
more deeply than you ever have on this risen Christ to begin and to experience that same power that Mary and John and Peter and Thomas and myself all testify to. So let's pray and ask the Lord to do that work in us. Lord, we come to you and we really ask that you would come and help us to meet your son, Jesus Christ, in a new way. The risen Jesus Christ. Right now by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we don't want to be like Mary, who just didn't want to give up control. We don't want to be like John, clueless to the evidence. We don't want to be like Peter, cowardly about the evidence that's before them. And we don't want to be like Thomas and lay terms out upon our belief. We, we drop all of them and we want to meet you this morning. And we come to you this morning saying, my Lord, my God, and we receive you for who you are our Savior and Lord, who's offered to us as a gift by grace and trusting in that finished work upon the cross for us. We, we trust in that, Lord. And we give you our lives to do with as you wish. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.